This is part two of our episode on thinking through loneliness. We're continuing our conversation with Diane Enns, professor of philosophy at Toronto Metropolitan University, Canada. In part two of this episode, we discuss the ambiguity of loneliness, social media, the ways we can refocus on the societal rather than the personal failures that produce loneliness, and whether there is a political alternative to our isolation. Take a listen. whole wedding industrial complex, especially in this country. And I think this is what you're getting at is like these individual functions or these structures are basically a microcosm for our systemic failures of, you know, I think pushing people to move to the suburbs when they're in their own house and divided or separated from community is a really great way to make people not talk to each other not organize, not create their own systems of care that might challenge our capitalist neoliberal structure in any way. Yes, yes. And I think we don't really even know how to come up with alternatives. So this is why I say somewhere in the book, something about, you know, we're, oh, actually, I have it right here. Are we lonely because we're not part of a couple? Or we could say family, or because we live in a social environment so impoverished that we must live as couples or as families in order to survive it. Because that's our default mode, but it's also, it's seen as the only alternative because where else are you going to find someone who can help you move a piece of furniture or help you get groceries when you can't get out of the house during a COVID lockdown? Or we pay people to do these things because we don't have, we don't have anyone to rely on unless we have family. So when are we going to make that transition? to, I mean, you'd think that we would, and I think people have, right? There are lots of people who are reimagining family life and finding new forms of, of care structures. So that is happening. But I think for many of us, there is this gap between me and the person who has a family to take care of these things. So I, yeah, I hope that you're right, that we will reevaluate, revalue relationships like friendships. Well, I certainly want to talk about alternatives to loneliness, but I'm going to bookmark that for a second because we've been talking a lot about the sort of negative ramifications of of how we feel loneliness and experience loneliness. But something else that you explore a lot in your book is this idea of ambiguity. What exactly do you mean about loneliness having this ambiguous quality rather than being this wholly negative experience? Because up until this point, it just seems like this really pernicious thing that we're all this kind of epidemic. It's a good question. I originally was going to call this book The Ambiguity of Loneliness. That was my working title for a number of years until someone who read the whole manuscript pointed out to me, actually, my definition of loneliness is not ambiguous. I'm saying very clearly, it's a form of suffering, it's deprivation, it's craving, it's a desire, right? But the ambiguity comes in all sorts of other ways in in the situations that people live in, also in the way that we perceive our own loneliness. So there's lots of uncertainties between 
where the line is drawn between isolation and solitude and loneliness and alienation, just aloneness, because of course, some people are happy to be alone much of the time and would not feel lonely. Other people would feel lonely after an hour alone. So there, there are a lot of contradictions in terms of how we experience the human condition. Right? We long to be alone. We long to be with others. And everyone has a different balance when it comes to this. So there are ambiguities around the issues. I'm, I'm someone who loves to deal with complexity and contradictions and paradoxes and uncertainty. And so it was a bit of a surprise, actually, when I realized, oh, I am giving a very definite definition of loneliness here. But yes, the ambiguity comes in the way that people experience it. It's really a spectrum there. I have this friend who always told me that there's a difference between being with yourself and by yourself. And I always remembered that because I think it's true, despite, you know, the fact that we're all, as you've been saying, like, really, really lonely, I think we still live in this fantasy. We are striving so desperately towards this ideal of being in this family or being partnered or whatever that I think we have a really hard time being alone, even when it could be good for us to be alone, mm-hmm. I think, especially with I think social media makes that even harder to mm-hmm. value the times when it's actually really good to be with yourself and to reflect and to process the things that have happened to you that day. Like I always find it very strange when people think I'm weird for loving going (laughs) by myself. Like it's such a weird solitary thing that we make this coupled experience for no apparent reason other than that's just this ideal that want to orient our entire existence towards. But I really think that there are moments where it's actually very good that I'm feeling lonely. There are a lot of people who agree with you, a lot of experts on loneliness who say that it's very good to be alone. I don't know if you've ever heard of Sarah Maitland. I write about her in the book. She lives alone in, I'm not sure if she still does, but lives alone in Scotland somewhere up north and really advocates being alone. And I think there are many people who say, yes, it's really good to be alone. And for obvious reasons, because thinking, you have time to think and yes, be with yourself. I was a little hesitant in the book to agree with these people who say this because for some people, it is really too difficult to be alone for extended periods of time or even short periods. And I don't, I think we all vary so much in that respect that to me, it doesn't really make sense to say, well, you should make yourself be alone or on the flip side, you should make yourself be with others. Sarah Maitland, for example, someone might say to her, you really, really should spend more time with people. And I think that There are lots of personal reasons and probably social reasons, who knows, environmental. Maybe we're born certain ways with a certain propensity for being alone or being with other people. And But I I like your point about needing time alone to think. And so for me, I mean, I love my solitude. I could probably tolerate more solitude than some people can and less than others, right? So we're all on this spectrum. But I think that without being alone, I do think that we can think with others, but without being alone, we don't get to let our minds wander so much because that could be dangerous if your mind is wandering while you're working or driving or doing something else. So there is that. And I do, there are things I love about solitude. So I think that, yeah, you make a good point there. 
Well, we all certainly spent a lot more time alone, not through choice, uh, recently. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I think largely helped, although, you know, some people might think different, was obviously technology and not just the usual like social media, obviously with Zoom for work and then other sort of channels for people getting in contact, keeping in contact with friends, family and so on. And I think, you know, over the last sort of decade or even further back, it's obvious that technology in particular, communication technology has really benefited a lot of underserved communities like disabled people and then obviously immigrants with regard to like keeping in touch. I would say that like there are parts of the book, however, where you seem quite ambivalent to technology, especially communications technology. So I was just wondering if you could expand on like what you think we both gain and lose as we seem to be still moving towards like more online communication. I think like every advance in technology, there are benefits and disadvantages. We pay a price for every new convenience. But I wouldn't say I'm too ambivalent about the social effects of digital technology. I think, yes, it certainly saved us during those lockdowns, right? We, I was able to work. <laughs> I, I didn't have to give up my job. I was able to work online. I was able to communicate with friends. I was able to see them on Zoom. And so there was some, some sense of the social world with students and family and friends. But that was under a crisis situation, right? If that's all we had, I think our existence would be quite bleak. So now, post-lockdown, I won't say post-COVID because it's not over, but post-lockdown era, I think we can see that some of those ways of relating we're getting used to. Right? I think, at least in my work in academia, there will be more meetings that are online. There will be less, and who knows? I mean, I don't know whether another severe variation will come along and we'll have to teach online again. But it's an experience I never want to have again. <laughs> because to engage with people, I mean, I'm engaging here with you, but it would be so much better if we were sitting around a table in person, right? And now, of course, it's fabulous that we can communicate with people in other parts of the world now and even see them and talk to them. So there are wonderful things about it. But at the same time, we're paying a big price for it. And what I mean by that is, again, referring back to increased violence, aggression, all of these things are arising out of the way we deal with each other on the internet. Mass conformity, think about Facebook, think about Twitter, all the likes that we need in order to say anything. We need instant approval of whatever we say. So there's mass conformity going on, which erodes independent thinking right? Not to mention there's virtue signaling. There's, I mean, that's all part of it, that we all have to think alike because we're so afraid that someone will not like what we say or someone will explode on the internet, on Twitter or, or what have you. And I really relied here on the work of Franco Berardi, contemporary Italian philosopher, who, when I first read his book, The Soul at Work, I was just blown away by it. I thought he's really looking at the negative effects of our digital times and saying it, yeah, pointing out that these are the these are the effects that we didn't anticipate and many of them are getting worse. 
and he discusses the rise in suicides, the rise in just the rise in meaninglessness and the rise in meaningless work. And I think it all has to do with, and this is his point, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're no longer encountering one another as embodied beings, right? We're not able to meet, and if we're not able to meet in person, if we don't have interactions with each other, other than virtual ones, then we really miss out on a lot. And for Berardi, it means that we don't, we're unable to have these empathic exchanges with others. It is really easy to insult someone online when you don't see them in front of you. If a person is in front of you, I mean, maybe it's getting easier now to insult someone who's in front of you because we're used to insulting people online, right? So all of that, all of what we're learning in our online communication is spilling out into our everyday in-person relationships and not everywhere, not all the time, of course. And many, many people are fighting against that. We fight against it in, in when we get together with our friends and have conversations where we're not looking at our phones all the time, or we fight against it when we get together with our neighbors and do things for our neighbors. And I'm sure this is happening all over the world in, in many, many different ways. But I think that the, the damage is considerable, and I think it is going to get worse. But I also think that we, what we don't see is probably all of those ways in which people are being subversive. I mean, now in a way, um, being friends is being subversive, being empathic is being subversive, doing something, even though it's inconvenient for you is being subversive. And I'm sure this is going on in multiple places. And obviously, I speak as someone who's in a big city. You know, I know life for others is very different in a small town where you still, you're very close to all the people who live in your little town. I know of neighborhoods that are very vibrant. People do things for each other. But when I see increasing reliance on our cell phones and our online communications, then I, yeah, I, I worry that we're not being critical enough of what's happening because, yeah, I don't know. I mean, our social, again, just to refer back to the, to social failure, because when you have a relationship with someone that's purely virtual, they're not going to be able to come over and give you food when you're grieving or when you're sick, right? And that, those material ways to care for someone, it would be terrible if we lost that. Yeah, I think it's really complicated because you're totally right. I think the internet, we've seen so many examples of this, especially recently, but just that it festers extremism, it festers, it fosters violence and resentments and it gives people license to be horrible to one another because there's this anonymity to the internet that we we still believe exists, even though it doesn't. Um, But at the same time, I feel like it took COVID to make the world so much more easily accessible. Like I know that for disabled people, things like TikTok and Instagram only started adding captions because they realized we were all at home and all needed it. And it was this thing that was so easy for them to add to their apps that it's just infuriating that it took this long, but it did this moment where we were all basically forced to experience 
the sort of isolation in our home, forced isolation in our homes that a lot of disabled people and chronically ill people experience. And it took that moment for the internet and a lot of our other structures to adjust in this way that I think is really helpful for people that have those have those experiences. But you're right. At the same time, social media, I think really makes people lonely because I think that there's this also this added element of shame to it. Because if you're on Instagram and you're scrolling through your feed and you're seeing all these people on holiday or having, Mm -hmm. you know, going to a concert and doing all these things with their friends without you, like it's very easy to think that you're the only person in the world who is really fucking lonely and not (laughs) experiencing all these fun things, even though everybody else is also projecting a certain persona online. So it is really complicated. I agree that it would be a really sad life experience to be completely siloed into these tiny little boxes online. But you're right. And I do recognize that. In fact, I've given talks about this in particular a number of times. And listeners always say this to me that, well, what do you want to just go back? We can't go back. And it sounds like you think all technology is bad. And I would never say that. And I, I agree with you that the things that the opportunities and advantages that the internet has offered to people is really incredible. But with any technology, this is what we face, right? That there's, there were things we could never have anticipated, like violent, like the fact that a shooter can go on Facebook and announce, I think it was Facebook, that he's going to kill his grandmother and that he's going to go into a school and, and, or we wouldn't have anticipated that that young girls would experience so much shame about their bodies because of what's happening on social media and all of these things we didn't anticipate, right? But now that it's here, obviously we can't go back. Obviously, there's, the technology is going to speed up. It's always speeding up. There will be incredible changes in the next 10 years, 20 years. Who knows what's going to happen? So if we can't go back, we just have to really analyze everything and understand it and try to mitigate all of the terrible things that are happening because of our digital technology and maximize the good of it. That's all we can do, right? But you're right. It's complex. It's difficult. And it's aggravating because we would like to take the good without the bad, obviously, right? That would be great. But we can't do that. Yeah, I don't think anything is going to happen in that respect until Congress people are getting doxxed in the same way that citizens are. Yeah, it's a little scary. It's a little scary where we're headed with this without more controls, but it's still fairly new, right? How long have we had data plans around for? I mean, in the next couple of decades, I think we really, really need to critique, 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 and come up with alternatives and figure out ways to solve all of the worst of these problems. But obviously, I speak as an older person. And I think for many of us in our 50s and 60s and and up, we're always, as you get older, you mourn the world you had, right? We see change, and there's always ever more rapid change. And so you look back and you think, with nostalgia, wasn't it wonderful when before the internet, when we called each other more, when we got together more often, we can get nostalgia about old technology, like my answering machine. (laughs) I really miss my telephone answering machine that blinked when you got in the door. There's always this process of mourning as you get older. 
when we read these critiques, we have to keep that in mind too, that when a critique is from someone like me who's older, you see, yes, what are we mourning? And that's not to dismiss it. That's not to say, oh, you're a dinosaur (laughs) um, or you're a Luddite. It's to say, what is it that we want to hang on to from that past? What do we want to revive? And, And really, what is it that we are losing? Because we can lose some really good things, and they may not be lost forever. So I think it's important to listen to those voices, even if it's the younger people who are going to be dealing with these rapid changes more than we are. Certainly. I know that Ming and I are both in this weirdly strange position here, because I think we were both basically the last generation of people who kind of grew up pre-internet. Like I didn't have a computer in my house until I was eight or nine. So I, I'm also nostalgic for that time. But then also speaking as a queer person, it was probably the first generation where I could look up stuff on YouTube or (laughs) go on Twitter and join all these gay or it was more Facebook, actually, just like these gay Facebook groups with people that lived across the, the country. And it, that was really the way that I understood my own queerness growing up. And I'm almost like, I know things are really terrible right now, but would there have been a previous generation for me to exist as comfortably as I exist now? Probably not. So it's such a mixed bag. I don't know if you feel similarly me, but definitely. I mean, yeah, how could you not? Things are really dark right now. Um, But yeah, I mean, we've been talking about all these failures of the state and and loneliness and how technology feeds into that. And you mentioned that you feel like it's really hard to think of an alternative out of this, but I'm wondering if you could do any forecasting as a, as a philosopher, like what, what does an alternative to loneliness look like both on a personal and, and, and so, well, maybe more on a social level. Well, while writing this book, I was always thinking about that. What are those examples of people really trying to recreate social life? And actually, this, the book was really only the first half of my loneliness project, as I called it. The second half was going to involve traveling, then COVID hit, but it was going to involve traveling to Scandinavia and the UK. I really intended to meet with your Minister of Loneliness. I thought this would be interesting. And to look up co-housing projects in Denmark, for example, or the Netherlands. I wanted to go to Italy and experience village squares and talk to people about their extended family life. Because I, I really believe that despite where technology might be taking us, we really need human contact and we need face-to-face contact. So one part of me thinks there's no way that we will just become virtual in our relationships. And COVID really showed us this. You know, there was lots of stories around here about neighbors reconnecting for the first time because you're on lockdown, you can't go to work, you can't really go anywhere. So you spend more time in the street, the kids were playing outside more, this kind of thing. And I think that says something about how when we have such a social need, we're really not going to be able to do away with it. So it's just a matter of of finding those examples of people reviving or reinventing social life, right? We don't really know what it's going to look like in the coming years. And so I feel still hopeful that this is not going to change. And 
and as you said, I mean, there's all kinds of wonderful things happening online as well. So there are ways for people to mitigate their loneliness online. And, and those people right now who, you know, because we're becoming a maskless public and there are lots of people who can't go out now because they're immuno, immunocompromised and so they can't really go anywhere. And for them too, they have to rely on, on the internet, on digital communications. But I think that people will find new ways to live together I imagine that you have the same issues we have here in Toronto, which is the high cost of, of housing. It's going up and up and up. And I think, as you said earlier, something about people buying houses together, I think that will happen more. I think we'll have to find co-housing solutions because we'll have to. It will be necessary. And also the family structure is really changing. So I think all of these things are already happening and just remains to be seen what other creative, inventive ways people will come up with. And who knows, there will probably be the occasional, uh, I'll call them hippies, hippie colony somewhere that's trying to get off the grid and, you know, lives up north, northern Canada somewhere. And because people are responding to this, the relentlessness of our digital news, the relentlessness of email and social media, we can never escape. And I think people are going to start reaching the breaking point if they haven't already, right? This, And we could talk about suicide and mental illness. I mean, I work with students, I see students all the time with increasing problems, mental health problems. And it's because their lives are just too hectic. There's too much competitiveness. There's too much work. They have to work and go to school and juggle all sorts of things, plus texting all day and, and who knows, Instagram and all of that. And I think it's just too much. And people really will have to find ways. So I do think that, you know, we're pretty creative and inventive. And, and I think we need to come up with, with alternatives. So I'm hopeful. We got to bring back the kibbutz. Uh, <laughs> I think that people will. I mean, I actually have a research assistant right now looking into co-housing in Canada. And she told me that there are lots and lots of examples that I had no idea. So it is something that I want to look into. And maybe I will eventually get to the UK to meet the Minister of Loneliness and, and see, you know, I know that there's lots of interesting things happening at the government level in the UK, in Scotland. There's lots of, yeah, you, ha you have, so this town, I think it's called Froome, F-R-O-M-E. Yeah. yeah, that would be. They yeah. apparently have a really interesting sort of social care community network. And so I'm going to go to Froome and see what they're doing. <laughs> it kind of sounds like by looking towards the future, you're almost looking towards the past because these are almost, they're modern articulations of, I feel like, very ancient connections that we make with one another just expanding, trying to get ourselves out of these shells and, and just expanding the bubble of people that we include in our own system of care. I think that's something that feels very historically human to me. And yeah. it's, it's only this modern invention for like the last, it's like really weird over the last 50 years that we've started to live alone. Like that's something that is really just part of the extremely contemporary present. Yes, but at the same time, many of us choose it for good reasons, you know, and it's not that we're necessarily lonely living alone. It's that we love the independence. Some people leave harmful relationships and then 
love their independence. And I don't think it's necessarily a negative thing. So we do have to be careful when we talk about living alone, that we don't equate that with increased loneliness. Although I'm sure there are many people who live alone who are very lonely. But if we had different ways of addressing social needs, other than family life and coupledom, then people who live alone wouldn't need to be lonely. So I I think, yes, you're right in the sense that there will be some people who just who want community life, like a village, right? But there will be others who don't want to go back to something like that, where they have to be with people all the time, and, and they'll find new ways to not be lonely, but to still have an independent life. I think the one worry that I would sort of detracts from my hopefulness is that we could be losing our sense of responsibility and obligation to others because the social fabric is unraveling, because there is all this failure to care and this growth and hostility. And, you know, we live in a time with really what can be very vicious political divides. And people are getting very polarized, not just in the US, but in a lot of places here too in Canada. So I worry that what that does is releases us from our sense of obligation. And of course, the less we have any kind of community, whether it's a neighborhood or family life, the less we experience that, the less we see others and insert ourselves into their lives and put up with them, right? I mean, this is, this is not always convenient to have an obligation to our neighbors or to strangers. But the less we do, then the less responsibility we feel. And that's, that's the scary, what could be a very scary outcome of all of this social failure, that we no longer feel a sense that, oh, I have to do this because of the collective. Perfect example, right, is people who refuse to wear masks in public spaces or people who refuse to get vaccinated. I think, well, that is really about a loss of a sense of doing something for the collective well-being. And that, I think, is very worrisome because if we lose that, then we don't have a collective Then, then there is no social fabric. So we need to do whatever it takes to maintain that, that social existence. And that includes obligation. That includes um, sometimes being inconvenienced by someone, right? We need to be bothered by other people. Yeah, I mean, I think our very survival depends on it. Yes. <laughs> We are facing so many different existential threats that rely on us to cooperate with one another. Absolutely. Yeah. So fingers crossed we keep moving in that direction. I guess we'll, I mean, who knows? We'll see what happens over the next couple of years. I am also, I have to be hopeful. It's a radical political emotion that you have to have if you need to, if you're going to survive under the circumstances that we're all living under. Yes. Yes, you're right. Well, I just want to thank you for your time. Um, This has been a really enlightening conversation. I hope everybody listening also starts to think about loneliness. Yeah, in all these political and philosophical ways that I think aren't always obvious when you're just walking through your life. But yeah, thank you. And thank you, Rebecca and Ming. It's been a real pleasure to talk to both of you. We're so excited for you to read the books from all our amazing authors that we've talked to this season. 
at Thinking Through Loneliness to your cart on our website and enter code POD35, followed by the country codes UK, US, AU or CA, depending on where you're located.